0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher. This is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Eric Pleiner. He's the author of the book, Difficult Decisions How Leaders Make the Right Call with Insight, Integrity, and Empathy. In this conversation, Eric shares three steps for making decisions with speed, clarity, and humanity. In this conversation, we talk about decision-making and why it's difficult, why it slows us down, how it is a productivity hindrance, how we can overthink. I know that's something that we recently rediscovered when it comes to decision-making and overthinking with John A. Cuff. And honestly, decision-making can be one of those things that just spins your cycles and takes up mental RAM and can sap your energy, your cognitive function, your physical stamina, and it is definitely one of those things where if you can do some of the work ahead of time and have kind of a decision-making rubric and filter in place, you are ahead of the game. And that is what this book and this conversation is going to set you up to do. So I'll just get out of the way and say, enjoy this conversation with Eric Pliner. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show, Eric Pliner. Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Eric. It's good to be here.
0: So, man, decision making. That is the question <laughs> to paraphrase Shakespeare. No. Decision making, honestly, I as somebody who is a chronic overthinker and can have what my friend Jeff calls vapor lock, <laughs> where <laughs> you just you, you don't know which direction, so you choose nothing, and that also is a choice, unfortunately. Yeah. So, but I am curious, you, I mean, you've been in consulting and have over, you know, 20 years of experience in leadership and organizational culture. And obviously something tipped you off as to this topic and why you needed to address it in your new book, which is called Difficult Decisions, how leaders make the right call with insight, integrity and empathy. What in your experience led you to the creation of this book?
1: I think what I what I started to see with the leaders that I worked with in all different industries, different sectors all over the world, was that the kind of complex decisions that they were facing were different from the ones that they had faced at other points in their careers and that their predecessors in their roles had been facing even in the decade prior. All of a sudden there was this intensity and complexity of human decisions, entirely subjective Coming at them, if not daily, maybe even hourly, um, about the kinds of things that they weren't trained for professionally or in in their education, and that was happening concurrently with the push to use data more rigorously, to engage with big data more frequently, and to figure out how could they make difficult decisions objectively. But what I saw was that the hardest choices that they were having to make were human decisions. They weren't things that could be answered by gathering more data or analyzing it with greater rigor. They were things that required them to look at the subjective elements of what they believe about right and wrong, what their ethical context is telling them, and what their stakeholders were expecting of them in their roles. All of a sudden, that stuff that used to be important but not quite as frequent was becoming a daily occurrence. And as a leader myself, I felt it too. That having some way to think about this in the abstract ahead of getting faced with a really complex human decision would make it a lot easier to make the tough choice in the moments when I had to make a really, a really difficult decision quickly.
0: So obviously the answer that somebody's thinking here is, okay, if there are human decisions, what do you call the decisions that are not human? unhuman or, or inhuman
1: decisions? <laughs> inhuman. Yeah. no I, not that they're inhuman, it's that they are able to be made objectively. And objective is a word that I use with real caution because I think everything has perspectives built into it. But often there are clear choices. There's still big, important decisions. But they're difficult in a different way. We can analyze risk benefit. We can say this is what the the potential outcomes are. And that doesn't mean that they aren't hard, but they aren't as deeply personal in quite the same way, either for the decision maker or for the person on the receiving end. When we're talking about what are the the number of, of stores that we want to open this year, that has implications for people but it's generally not a deeply moral or ethical decision. may have moral or ethical components to it, but it's not the same as determining, do I make a choice about whether to mandate a vaccine for all of our employees, for instance, where we are answering questions or forcing people to ask and then answer questions about things like bodily autonomy and public health and what's in the collective interest and what's in personal interest. These are the kinds of things that aren't showing up in Harvard Business School case studies when leaders are early in their careers and suddenly they get these opportunities to lead in big jobs that they've aspired to for a long time and no one has prepared them and many steps in their careers to, yet to prepare them for the real complexity of those deeply human questions on top of the questions that can be answered with greater objectivity through data.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like these leaders are facing complex decisions that are kind of a center of a Venn diagram type decisions where not only does it involve data, but it involves, you know, where do we stand as a company? Have we even decided that or even if we have our mission statement and some of our strategies in place, have we really thought through the structure of how that comes down to, again, the, the morality or the ethics of what we're doing and where we stand there as well?
1: Well, and I think part of the reason for that is because the people to whom leaders are obligated have moved around that Venn diagram somewhat. So what I mean is it was easier when there was a prevailing view that the primary job of the leader was to maximize shareholder value. When we have things like the 181 CEOs of the business roundtable saying, no, we are Obligated to our shareholders and also we're obligated to our employees and to our customers and our communities and the planet. Suddenly, if we're going to make statements like that, we have responsibilities to, it, to different groups of people that sometimes come into conflict with each other. And so what sits at the center of those conflicts is of course the tough decision. When you make a choice that makes some people happy, satisfies some people's needs, inevitably you're going to make a choice that Doesn't satisfy other people, disappoints other people, and so to your point at the top, and that means that sometimes the temptation is to choose nothing, and you quickly learn that choosing nothing, choosing inaction, is a choice, and it's a choice that a lot of stakeholder groups will not put up with anymore.
0: So I'm curious, like, what has been the prevailing decision-making process up until now, and what you're proposing is a new rubric to make decisions with.
1: I think in general, the prevailing, it's kind of a shorthand, I guess, is what's going to do the least harm or maybe adjacent to that, what's going to lead to the most benefit. The problem with that is that it presumes that the majority always knows or dictates what the right thing is to do. And what we've learned over the last few years is that sometimes a less popular view is still a more ethical view. So let me give you an example. You could have 10 people in a room and nine of them could say, it's too hot. Let's turn the temperature down. And the 10th person could say, it's too cold. Let's turn the temperature up. Well, the easy solution there would be, well, let's, you know, majority rules. Nine people say we need to, we need to uh, make it cooler. But if we know that the reason is that that 10th person has a health issue that will be exacerbated by a change in the temperature in the wrong direction, Actually, that one person is asking for a more ethical choice. The thing that's most popular or that satisfies the most people isn't necessarily the best choice. And so what I'm proposing instead is that leaders, one, need to think about where do I get my ideas of right and wrong? Where does that come from in my life? I'm not trying to influence anyone's view of morality, but I think it's important for leaders, the people with responsibility to and for other people, to think about in the abstract, why do I think what I think about right and wrong? What do I really believe about that? Where does that come from? And then to gauge that against their ethical context, which is constantly changing to say in the grand scheme of things, how do I understand what makes things better and what makes things worse? What's helpful or what's harmful, what's beneficial or what's detrimental? That's a constant scanning that they have to be doing every day. And then finally, to measure those two things against their role responsibilities. Who are their stakeholders? To whom are they responsible? And for whom are they responsible? And what are those people's expectations of them? When any two sides of that triangle, morals, ethics, or role responsibilities, come into conflict, the easiest thing to do is to look to the third to help give direction on how to resolve the conflict. It's a little bit more complex than just saying we'll do what's best for most people, but it has much greater integrity than just saying majority rules.
0: I definitely want to dig in more on the triangle, but I want to say this. It sounds like you used the word earlier, objective, and you wanted to use that cautiously. There's another word that goes hand in hand with objective or objectivity, which is subject or subjectivity. And I think this is kind of, you know, in a sense, you're rectifying or reducing the friction between those two words, in a sense, subjectivity and objectivity.
1: Yeah, I think there's been a push for a long time to say that great leaders are unemotional or that they're able to be objective about difficult things. And again, since I believe that we all see the world through the lenses of our identities and our experiences the paths that we've been on in our lives what i'm more interested in is the notion of skilled subjectivity Mm. recognizing that everything that we do and how we see stuff is subjective how can we get better at evaluating the sources of our subjectivity how somebody with different sources might see the world differently than we do and how i reconcile when that subjectivity comes into conflict with someone else's subjective point of view.
0: And to that end, then the moral, ethical role, three different points in the triangle, make up the moral, ethical role, responsibility triangle that you were just talking about. And and it seems to me, though it's a triangle, it actually is kind of like a circle of a compass.
1: Yeah, indeed, indeed. And probably there are uh, even further dimensions within any one of those dimensions that make it some sort of, 3D or 4D object way over my head on trying to uh, use as a metaphor. I think the point is that where stuff comes into conflict is the difference between what I see or feel on the inside, what I see or feel on the outside, and what I see or feel when I look around. Looking in, looking outward, and looking around are really just three different ways of saying what's my moral code, what's the ethical context, and to whom do I have responsibilities in what capacity. (laughs)
0: Thank <laughs> you. slash to-do list right now, and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, let's dive in on each of those. I would love to take some time and maybe unpack a little bit more, you know, each of the pieces of the triangle, the moral, the ethical, and the, the role, and kind of not just give greater explanation, but differentiate those three.
1: Yeah, sure. People get really nervous. That's the notion of talking about morality. And there's, there's good reason for that. Um, morality has very strong branding, although not always positive branding, which is that morality is the purview of a certain or particular political ideology or social ideology. But the truth is that everybody has morality. I and mean, there are exceptions, obviously, but those are, uh, those are clinical diagnoses that are, that are for a different context in a different podcast. Morality is our view of right and wrong. And it's something that's fixed relatively early in life. People generally don't change their views of morality after around age 10 or so. So the goal is not to try to influence other people's morality, but to help people to understand where did I get my ideas of right and wrong from? Are they still relevant or current in how I live my life? And what do they reflect? Lots of people say to me, can't we just talk about values instead of making it about morality? morality is risky because it's been used as a way of further marginalizing people who are often already marginalized in lots of different contexts but the difference between values and morals and why i push up to think about morals is that values tell us what we stand for so they're aspirational they're what i want to be but if i say that these are my values and i behave in a way that's different there's no real consequence to that morals Tell us what we won't stand for they are a thick line that we draw with a black sharpie that says i will absolutely not stand for this this is wrong and so they require a different kind of commitment on the part of the individual to understand again what do i believe about right and wrong where does it come from and what do i do with that how does it influence the way that i make decisions interact with other people or lead the organizations and people for whom I have and to whom I have responsibility. Ethics are different. And so what I say is that that morals are internally determined and they're externally referenced. I think inside of myself about what's right and wrong, but I reference that to things that I see outside of myself. Ethics are the inverse. They're externally determined. An individual doesn't have ethics. Ethics are collective or shared in some way. And then they're internally referenced or distilled. So ethics are about what's helpful or harmful, beneficial, or detrimental in a particular context. And again, that context is changing faster than it ever has before. By way of example, people uh, in the field of psychology, which uh, many of the folks in our firm are psychologists by background and by training, will talk about the notion that there was a time when it was considered appropriate beneficial even, in psychological testing to administer electricity as a component of understanding human reactions. Nowadays, we would understand that actually the harm that that causes the individual for the purpose of scientific testing outweighs any potential benefit of the learning from that experimentation. We know that that ethic has changed. That's a pretty drastic example, but there are other examples that are more current what do we expect of people with regard to managing their health and how do we differentiate between our personal views about bodily autonomy and our views about what's in the collective interest that's come up to almost every leader. I know anywhere in the world with regard to COVID vaccinations, do we require people to get vaccinated before they can come back to the office? What in the collective interest, What's beneficial or harmful writ large? And how do we make sure that the choices that we're making are aligned to what current expectations are in those contexts? And that last one about role responsibilities is really about understanding your stakeholders. To whom am I obligated or responsible? For what am I responsible? And what do I do when the interests of one of my stakeholders come into conflict with the interests of another one?
0: That was a great synopsis of all three. And so to take us one step further, and by the way, I think a lot of people often will confuse slash merge the moral and ethical. So I'm I'm really glad to have a a differentiator between those two here as well.
1: There's a great scene in the 1999 movie Election where two of the characters who are both high school teachers are talking to each other. And one of them reveals that he's had a sexual relationship with one of their students. And the other teacher says to him, I want you to understand that you have to stop this. This is really wrong. And the first teacher says, I, I don't need a lecture on ethics. And uh, Matthew Broderick, the other teacher, responds, I'm not talking about ethics. I'm talking about morals. And the first teacher says, what's the difference? And I think that question is one that we often struggle with they seem synonymous but again the idea is that what we think about right and wrong can be different from what we think about what's beneficial versus what's harmful
0: yeah so you mentioned earlier when you first brought up the triangle that whenever any two points of the triangle are in conflict you look to that third one to give clarity or to give insight, wisdom, et cetera, into that decision-making process. I'm curious, do you have any examples, like walk us through like what that would look like when two of them are in conflict and the third comes in to save the day?
1: <laughs> well, I wish it was as easy as it saving the day. And if, if it was, it would be uh, an even shorter book. But I'll give, I will give you a, a couple of examples. And these are, these are all real examples from, uh, from things that I've either experienced or that I've experienced with my clients, leaders in business and across uh, sectors around the world. Here's a recent one. I have a fiduciary responsibility to my shareholders to maximize the return on their investment. And I might have a highly profitable business operating in Russia right now. I have to make a choice. The contextual ethic has changed not that long ago or even a few weeks really. There wasn't really much question about whether a business would continue to operate in Russia or not, but all of a sudden I have to make a choice between do I reduce my performance against my obligation and responsibility to my shareholders to maximize their investment through my highly profitable business in Russia, or do I recognize that the age in the ethical context indicates that continuing to do business in Russia, it's harmful. It's harmful to the world. It's harmful to the people of Ukraine. It's harmful perhaps to our employees. Okay. Those are in conflict with one another. So we look to the third dimension, morality, to say, well, what do I believe is right? And what do I believe is wrong? And for lots of leaders, that's been an easy way to make sense of that conflict because the belief is that if I don't want to support the Russian government in engaging in illegal and immoral activity then I shouldn't continue to lead a business that provides financial support to the Russian economy. Where that can get complicated though, and has gotten complicated for a lot of leaders is, well, wait a second, but what do I believe is morally right and morally wrong in my responsibility to our employees in Russia who may or may not support the Russian government? And so what we've seen is leaders working through the conflict between what's right for the business, well, actually, when I think what's right for the business is maximizing shareholder return, that's pretty clear, but I have two choices if that comes into conflict with the ethical context or my moral belief. Choice one is I can influence my stakeholders to understand that change in the ethical context and understand my moral point of view, or I can say, I won't do it, I'm leaving. That last thing is a card you get to play only one time. So in the case of most leaders, they've been able to influence their stakeholders to say, yeah, you know what, doing what we believe is right and what we believe is helpful rather than harmful is in everybody's interest. And so therefore we will wind down our business or or change our business. The added dimension for those who believe that they don't want to harm their people is how do we continue to provide financial support to individuals, to our employees, while not continuing to operate our businesses? And that may seem in conflict with the interests of the company, but for those companies that have clearly identified their moral competence and their expectations of how to operate in this ethical context, it's an easy choice to say, we keep taking care of people, even if we're not operating the business. This is one that has a lot of dimensions to it, but looking to that third side of the triangle when the first two come into conflict helps to clarify what the right way forward is.
0: That's a great example. It's a timely example, unfortunately. Let's hope that it's a less timely example moving forward here soon, but that's a grander scale, larger scale type of living out of this decision-making process using the triangle. I wonder, do you have any smaller examples? Because obviously this one is one that is recent, is again, larger scale, but it's maybe above a lot of listeners' heads in terms of what they live with or encounter in a day-to-day process.
1: Yeah, sure. So let's think about you have a boss who asks you to report a more optimistic outcome on a project that you believe is genuinely possible. You look at what's ahead over the next six months and you have a sense of what you can deliver, what your team can deliver, and you're pretty clear based on the data that you have about what the likely range of outcomes are. But your boss says, look, We need to buy ourselves some time. We need to report something more optimistic than that. And then we'll figure out what to do later. So now what do I do? I don't want to be dishonest. I also don't want to lose my job. And I don't want to have a conflict with my boss. So if I look at the morality, I might tell myself, well, it's wrong for me to lie about what is possible for us to deliver. And I don't really want to do that. If I look at my role responsibilities, part of my obligation is to the company. Part of my obligation is to my boss. And my boss is telling me that it's good for the company. It's good for our team, maybe for us to report a higher number than we believe is possible. So now I've got a conflict between my morality and what I believe my role responsibilities to be. So what do I do? Well, I look to the ethical context. Do we operate in a context that says, that our value, our company's code of behavior requires us to do what is least harmful and most helpful at all times. How explicit a part of our culture is that? What kind of resources are available to me to help process with and to make a decision? And then without defying or humiliating my boss, how can I influence her or him to make sure that I can say, this isn't just about me and what I want to do. But I think in the context of how we operate here, I want to make sure that I'm operating in a way that's in line with our code of conduct, that's in line with our company expectation, that's in line with what's expected of all of us here. You're thinking about influencing in a different way, even though you might not change the total situation, you might have some frustration or disappointment. Remember, every difficult decision is going to disappoint someone. You can operate with integrity without worrying about, am I going to lose my job over this? Or am I going to be forced to do something that I absolutely believe is wrong and that I think is harmful in our ethical context?
0: That's another great example there. I'm coming back to, I forget how you coined it. It was either flexible. It wasn't flexible subjectivity. It was
1: skilled subjectivity. Skilled subjectivity.
0: Yes. So skilled, that just stuck with me, even though I couldn't remember the first word. Uh, (laughs) Skilled subjectivity, it, it seems to me like Part of the inherentness of the word skilled when attached to subjectivity is not just flexibility, but um, maybe triage comes to mind, but something maybe more thought through, more strategic. In other words, what I'm getting at here is already having some sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, homework done on the moral, the ethical, and the role areas of the triangle makes it so that when something comes up, you're able to plug in the decision into the center or run it through the filter of all three and see what's going on, where am I at, and quickly, as part of the skill set, make a decision, not just a better decision, but a faster decision.
1: That is exactly it. You've hit the nail on the head, Eric. The idea is if you start to think about this in the abstract, when you're not right in the middle of a very high stakes decision and you know, I'm not talking, when I'm talking about space, I don't just mean on a global scale, but high stakes in our lives, high stakes in our day to day reality. And if you can do it in the abstract, when you're not in that situation, it's way easier to figure out a way through quickly because the risk is if you don't do it in advance, you get faced with something that is unlike anything you've ever considered before. And you need an answer right away and you don't know how to make sense of all of these pieces. So part of the, the idea is how do you, with intent before you're in the situation, start to build your self-awareness, your self-knowledge, and your self-management around these subjective issues so that when the next thing comes up and it will come up probably sooner than we want it to, you can be ready to say, you know what? I've got some clarity about what matters to me about what the expectations of my stakeholders are, and about what the ethical context is. And that makes it easier for me to make a tough decision faster. Otherwise, you end up in that kind of analysis paralysis. That means you make a decision by default rather than with intent. And great leadership, great decision-making is always done with intent.
0: Yeah. And what's great is, you know, I, I think, you know, experience is one of the biggest teachers. We, you know, in the example of the Ukraine and that example you gave. We'd ideally like to not have to make those decisions very often. But what it does do, as well as like, say, the pandemic, is it brings these scenarios up. And since we have to live through them, then it's a matter of, okay, well, in case of this or a flavor of circumstance like this happens in the future, where do we stand on these things? And oh, by the way, once we've kind of set that up, hey, let's dig a little deeper so that we can, again, do that homework on these three aspects of the triangle, so that even if we come up against the scenario we completely could not see coming, that we have, again, kind of our compass in place to navigate it.
1: What I've heard from people who've read the book and who've given some thought to the notion of the moral, ethical, and role responsibilities triangle is that once they start thinking about it, they start noticing it everywhere. And so – It becomes easier to make lots of different decisions in the day-to-day because they've already got that framework in mind to say, oh, wait a minute, I know a way to think about that. That changes the idea of how you encounter something, even if it's completely unexpected, you've still got a set of tools with which to make sense of it. And that's part of what we're talking about is sense-making.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So in in that sense, not just the triangle acts as a compass, but the book itself acts as a compass towards making better decisions, especially when it comes to difficult decisions, the name of the book. So I know that people are definitely going to get a lot out of this. I would love to point people to where they can learn more about the book, pick up a copy. It's out now. I think this is going to be a game changer for people when it comes to not just alleviating stress when it comes to decision-making, but reducing the amount of time you're thinking about the decisions or in that decision-making process that can be so difficult.
1: Yeah, thanks, Eric. I hope it reduces the time and I hope it also reduces some of the emotional weight. A lot of this kind of stuff can feel really heavy because again, it is about those human aspects of our interactions, of our businesses, of our organizations, of our lives, That when we know that our choices affect real people's real lives, that can weigh on us in a big way. So I hope it reduces time to decision making. And I also hope it reduces some of that emotional and psychological weight or heaviness that these kind of choices can carry, too.
0: Yeah. So where is the best place to point people to if they want to find out more about the book and about you?
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, You can find out more about me and about the book at www.yfc.com. That's uh, short for Young Samuel Chambers, and uh, you can read a bit more about our firm and about some of our thinking, but also about how to get the book there, and you can find it online and in person anywhere books are sold, as well as in audiobooks.
0: Awesome. Eric, it's been great talking with you, and this is a great topic. I can't wait to see what you do next.
1: Thanks, Eric. Thanks for having me today.
0: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Eric Pleiner. I know that it really helped me to sit down and think about some of the aspects of the moral-ethical role-responsibility triangle and the way that I make my decisions. Honestly, sometimes I take either too much time or not enough time when it comes to making decisions. Hopefully, speeding those up when they're slow or slowing them down when they're fast based on you know needing to spend more time or really factor in the right things will be what I do moving forward based on the learnings from this book and this conversation. If you found this conversation helpful, I would love for you to do me the favor of sharing it with somebody you know needs to hear it. Do them that favor also. All you need to do is click the share button in your podcast player app of choice where you're listening right now, or head on over to the show notes, click the share button from there. Thank you so much for sharing. Thanks again for listening, and I will see you next episode.